Hi, my name's Andy Chamberlain, and this is the Creative Writer's Tool Belt, the podcast that gives you practical, accessible advice that you can apply straight away to your own writing. You can find out more at my website, andrewjchamberlain.com, where you'll also find out about the Creative Writer's Tool Belt handbook, which condenses all of the very best advice and insight from my expert guests and me in one place. I hope you enjoy this episode of the Creative Writer's Tool Belt podcast, and it's helpful to you on your writing journey. And welcome to episode 145 of the Creative Writers Talk About podcast. My guest for today's episode is Nigerian-born former human rights worker turned author, Abidemi Sanusi. Abidemi has been writing and publishing books across multiple genres for 15 years and her novel, Io, about a 10-year-old girl trafficked to the UK with promises of a better life, was nominated for the Commonwealth Writers' Prize. She's also the founder of Abidemi.tv, the website for ambitious writers, where people can learn to write their first book and make more from writing through her online step-by-step course called From Idea to Finished Manuscript in Five Steps. And she also provides business success templates for freelance writers. A self-confessed tech geek, she is also the founder of writethemes.com, that's W-R-I-T-E, themes.com which contains lots of gorgeous wordpress themes for writers that turn their website visitors into paying fans but before we come to that conversation with Abidemi, in other news i have just returned from worldcon in dublin which is the world science fiction convention where i spoke on a couple of panels and also had the privilege of working with young writers aged 8 to 12 talking about some of the key principles that i have shared with you over nearly 150 episodes of the podcast. I also made the acquaintance of the Pope's astronomer, Brother Guy Consomagno, a man who is committed to his faith and to science. Brother Guy is a writer and someone who loves stories, and I hope to be speaking with him and bringing that conversation to you as an episode in the near future. I also caught up with my friend Derek Kunskan, a Canadian writer who probably holds the record for appearing the most times as a guest on the podcast. And I also had the opportunity to talk to some of the people at the forefront of the renaissance in science fiction in China. Not sure whether you knew that there was a renaissance in science fiction in China at the moment, but I can assure you there is. And you'll hear from authors and editors who are at the forefront of that phenomenon in a future episode soon as well. Now, for those of you who may be thinking I'm not doing enough of these episodes where I just share some good old advice on a topic related to the craft of writing with a sprinkling of examples like I used to in the old days and you'd like to hear more of these, you know what? I'd love to do more of them and I am actively looking around at the moment for topics to present to you in those kinds of episodes. So if you have a problem or a challenge in your writing and it's not something that I've covered before on the podcast, drop me a line and tell me about it and maybe I can do some research and present it to you in the way I do these things with the Creative Writers Tool Belt. And indeed, it was an email from Janet, a listener from San Diego, that prompted me to look at the issue of when characters go rogue in episode 139. So if you've got a creative writing challenge for me to look at, just drop me a line. It's andrew at andrewjchamberlain.com. I'm also beginning to see some great reviews for my new novel, The Centauri Survivors, which is currently available in paperback from Amazon and in ebook format from just about all the places 
where you can find these things. I'm really grateful to those people who have left a review. If you've bought it and read it and you feel inclined to do so, please do leave a review on Amazon and Goodreads and anywhere else you like. That's really useful to me. Thank you. Now, if you want to find out what the Centauri Survivors is about, maybe decide whether you want to purchase a copy or not, you can get a free download copy of the original first chapter, which isn't in the published book and which tells the story from the very beginning and sows the seeds for all the other things that happen in the novel. And you can do that one of two ways. You can go to my website, www.andrewjchamberlain.com and you can download it from the welcome page there. Or again, you can just drop me a line, andrew at andrewjchamberlain.com and I'll send you a PDF. So back to this episode and my conversation with Abidemi, which encourages us all, among many other things, to own our identity, own our voice and give ourselves permission to write. Here it is. So Abidemi, welcome to the Creative Writers Toolbelt podcast. It's great to have you on the show. I'm happy to be here and excited. <laughs> so. I want to start by asking you if you could tell us a little bit about your upbringing and when you were a child and particularly the significant cultural influences on you as you were growing up. I think, I'm, I'm thinking here films, books, TV. Yeah. yeah, sure. So now I live in London in the UK, but I was, in, I was actually born in Lagos in Nigeria. Okay. And, it's, and um, so the tradition in my family is, and don't feel sorry for me when I say this because I have a terrific time. Tradition in my family is once you're eight years old, um, you're sent to a boarding school in England. And I don't know how that tradition came about, but it's just the way that things were uh, with my family. Once you're eight, you're sent to boarding school. And it's not because my parents, I know, I, I know, but it's not because our parents did not love us. They did. It was just a thing that they did. And, um, but they were quite with me. I didn't actually go to boarding school, but I did in Nigeria when I was okay. nine. But for some reason, because mom just said, actually, I want this one in Nigeria with me. But everybody else was packed up to England at the age of eight or what have you. So I, my mom held on to me in Nigeria. I was in so all your siblings went to, went to boarding school or something? And mom was yeah, in England. Yeah, in England. Yeah. So I was, yeah. But then for some reason, mom said, well, Abidem is going to stay with me. She's still going to be in a boarding school, but she will be in Nigeria. We're not going to ship her off to England like we did the other siblings. I think by the time he came to me, she was just like, now I want my kids around. Yeah. Um, yeah. So she held on until I was about 12 or 13. Then I was packed off to boarding school. <laughs> <laughs> so it boarding school in England. And funny enough, it was, I was the one that said, you know what, dad, like I really miss my sisters. It's just me when I come home and you know sometimes we're like sometimes dad would be like okay for Easter you're gonna go to London but then after a while I, I just said you know what dad I don't want to see my siblings during the holidays like I just really really miss my siblings mm. so yeah and then I was I was shipped off but I'm um, so growing up in Nigeria I loved books I loved to read and I grew up in a Muslim family and um, so I grew up in a Muslim family and strangely enough, like people find it strange, but I, I, I don't. So because I loved reading so much, we had like, I don't know if you remember just kind of Lion's Children's Bible with a golden cover. Yeah. Yeah. I, to this day, I've never quite figured out how that Bible made, made its way to our house because my parents were like really devout Muslims. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Like, you know, my mom wore the hijab and, you know, stuff like that. We didn't, but, you know, she did. Yeah. And for some reason, she, they never quite, nobody could explain where they got this Bible from. I don't know. It was just this Diane's Bible 
children's Bible. So I loved reading so much. I think they just thought we would just shut her up. So <laughs> even though growing up in this Muslim family, it was something for me to read. Um, and I think that's probably why they let me read it, just like we're tired of buying her books. So if this was shut her up. And writing was always an, an escape for me. Um, so if I had a, if I had a problem or I had a massive argument with my mom, I would go write like a short story and there was always the witch who died at the end. And that was my way of just processing any kind of disagreements that I had with my mother or anything else that life would throw at me. So that was my childhood really, which is books and writing. And it sounds a bit strange as well, but I've never really doubted that I would write. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. like people start painting, but it just never occurred to me that it wouldn't happen. So the idea of being rich and famous really, for me, wasn't really a thing. It was just like, I am going to write. And whatever life threw at me, I was going to be a writer. I didn't know how it was going to happen, but I just knew I was going to do it. Um, okay. So that was just it really. Cool. Yeah. Was there a particular thing you wanted to write when you were younger? It was always fiction. That's, that's, yeah. That was always my first and true love. I mean, over time I've had to... Over time, I diversify sometimes out of financial need and sometimes because I want to challenge myself um, creatively. But um, I'm now back to, you know, I'm now back to doing what it is that I think I do best and what I love. And that is the, the fiction. So can you tell us what you're writing at the moment? Yeah, sure. So I've got a book coming out next year with a, pub, uh, with a publisher called Jacaranda, and the book is called Looking for Bono. And it's about, um, and it's very much uh, commercial. This is just it, really, because I've always considered myself, and this is just the thing about writing, that like you think of yourself one way, but the world sees you differently. So yeah. I've always considered myself as like a commercial um, fiction writer. And um, you know Nando's, the chicken Yeah. Yeah. So this is the way I think about writing. In our culture, <laughs> yeah, growing up in Nigeria, there's very much a kind of literary, there's a terrible literary kind of snobbery. Like people think you have to be, if you are a writer, then you have to be literary. I don't even think people know what literary means, to, to be honest with you. It's like, oh, I'm a literary writer. And, you know, that just really, really annoys me. Like writing is a craft, it's an art. Like you're writing books for people. Just write it. Let them enjoy it. No one cares if it's literary or not. Do you know what I mean? The whole point of art is for people to enjoy it. And when you go around like, I don't know, like a peacock and you're saying stuff like, oh, I'm a literary writer. I just, just think it's just really like, it's just really poor, bad form. But anyway, that's my particular thing. So I've already kind of like considered myself as a kind of commercial, like general audience writer, even when I wrote Christian fiction. Yeah. And before, and then when I broadened broaden myself out, but then having been in contact with some people in the literary world, in the publishing world, they're like, well, I actually think you're more of a literary writer, which is weird to me because I've never actually considered myself that. So this book that's coming out called Looking for Bono is, 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 a, is more of a satire and it's just based on my experiences as a human rights worker. So when I was writing, it's very much a mass appeal kind of novel. But then the people that have read it, they're like, no, it's more kind of light, kind of literary fiction, which is a bit weird for me. So, <laughs> so it's, it's about... One thing that you're not greatly a fan of, literary fiction. It sounds like you're writing some literary fiction. Yeah, none of I'm not a fan of it. I will read it, but I just don't think... I just, I just think when it comes to art, just let's just express yourself, do the best that you can. I don't worry about you know, something being high-end. It's like, you know, when you go to a rest, this is the way that I think about books. I will literally read anything. 
So when I think about books, like um, I, this is the way that I used to think about my books. Like you go to Nando's, you have a lovely meal, you know, with friends and family, and then you have a nice chat and the meal has been really nice. It's cheap and cheerful and affordable. You know, the ambience is really good. Yeah. Like in England, we say, let's have a chicken Nando's. You know, it doesn't make sense to the rest of the world. But like in England, we understand ourselves. But then you go to like a really artsy-farty restaurant and they give you these really tiny meals. It's like seven courses. But then, you know, it's, it's a great culinary experience. You leave the restaurant and you're starving. And like, you know, and you always get a burger or something when you leave. So that's <laughs> so for me, they are, you know, that kind of culinary experience for me that's just like what literary books are like whereas I tend to think of my books as more like Nando's books you know you eat it you're satisfied you think oh yeah. man that was amazing I, like I'm really happy I don't need to get a burger um <laughs> what was yeah. the book that you that, that again so it's called looking for Bono um and it's it's out um I've been told June 2020 so it's about this guy in Nigeria he's 54 years old He's illiterate and he lives in a slum. And over the course of one day, he's watching BBC World, BBC News, BBC yeah. World Service. And over the course of that day, he sees Bono, the musician, um, traveling all around Africa. And it just seems to him like every time he turns on the television, like Bono is on TV, he's meeting the president of Kenya or South Africa or Nigeria yeah. or what have you. And it seems like they all start their sentences with, oh, I was going to close down this slum, but then I spoke to my friend Bono and he said I shouldn't, so I'm not. Oh, we're going to, you know, increase the money for this type of medication to eradicate this. But I spoke to my friend Bono and Bono said it was not a good idea, so I'm not going to do it. So this guy is this illiterate guy. He's never left his slum, never traveled anywhere. He can't read or write. Um, so he gets into his head, well, if this musician, so-called famous person, He's such a good person that maybe he can talk to the Nigerian president to bring water to my slum. And that's the premise of the story um, of the novel. So it's meant to be a satire. It's quite funny. And it was kind of like based on my experiences working in human rights in in, um, West Africa. Um, So it's very lighthearted, very Nando's, but I hope people will enjoy it. appeal to people of, of all kinds of tastes mightn't it I guess oh definitely definitely I it's it's nice when you're writing a book like you actually enjoy writing because that I did actually get to a point in my life where it's writing stopped being fun for me it just became a job and that wasn't yeah. good <laughs> now you've mentioned a couple of times in our conversation so far that that you were a human rights worker I just want to ask you just briefly about that can you tell us a little bit about what you did yeah, sure. I, I was a human rights worker for almost five years. I worked in England for a small African charity. So we had an office in London and we had another one in Nigeria. And I specialized in gender and conflict in West Africa, specifically three countries, Nigeria, Liberia and Sierra Leone. If a country has had conflict or civil war or what have you, then I don't, I don't want to say idiots like me, but Fools like me will go in there and then make an assessment of the lives of women and kids on the ground in the local communities. Mm. And then we'll work with other NGOs just to basically revitalize and restructure, improve the lives of the women and children in those communities. Has any of that experience informed your writing then? Oh, definitely. So um, after about five years doing that, I just got a bit tired. I got jaded. I was really jaded. Yeah. Um, and because um, basically like the traveling was a lot. It was, it was really intense. And I realized I had actually stopped caring and that's not a good thing. No. 
Um, but I just didn't want to leave. I wanted to leave a legacy. And that's where I got the idea for a book called Ayo, E-Y-O. And it was just around the time that I was thinking about the book, um, one of my friends was also thinking of setting up a charity. It was the first one actually in the UK um, and basically helped trafficked um, African kids in the UK. Mm-hmm. And it was the first African-led and Afri- yeah, um, charity in the UK to do that. So basically they helped African kids have been trafficked to the UK. It was around the time. So what I did based on her case studies and the case studies of people that I worked with on the ground, I wrote a book about this girl called Ayo who was sent from Lagos, Nigeria to England and um, for a better life. Mm. And so th- and actually that was my breakout book from Christian Publishing. It was I think it was my fourth book, mm. but the three books I'd written before that had been basically aimed at the Christian audience. Mm. And I remember like, you know, when I wrote, everyone's telling me that I couldn't do it, that I shouldn't do it, but I wanted to stretch myself. And I also, I just thought if I'm going to leave this human rights world, I can't just leave. You want to do something. So that book really was my way of saying here world, you know, this is what's happening. Cause when, when something's a true life story, what I found when I was doing that work was people were just like, yeah, we know it's happening. But then when it's a novel, people tend to react a bit more to it. Mm. So, yeah, the concept just worked better as a novel based on real-life case studies than it would have done if it was just, like, case studies of people. And, you know, practitioners liked it, um, like it, and people still like it. It was my way of saying to everybody that was telling me, oh, don't branch out of Christian publishing. It was my way of saying, yes, I'm glad I challenged myself. Yeah. <laughs> I do want to pick up on this this issue of telling a story and it sounds as if you're saying that stories are powerful and we should remember this and we should remember it as writers. It is. And I think we should be given permission to do that. Permission by ourselves or? Yeah, yeah, I think, yeah, give ourselves like permission to do that. And I think the world also, you know, for me, I know the world is okay with it, but there are some purists out there. You think, well, actually it's still fiction. Yes. It might be based on a, you know, on, real life but you know the way you package it then it's still not proper storytelling and i'm like okay that's fine that's your opinion i don't really care whichever way but (laughs) 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 thanks for sharing it with me have a nice life (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah Now, let's as well talk about this challenge of moving to a different genre. So lots of us as writers, and I've found this, we write a certain kind of book, or we write a number of books in a certain category, and then we want to do something different. As as you've done it, sometimes we can get some pressure not to do that, or sometimes we can put pressure on ourselves not to do that. But you've written in different genres, in different categories. How did you give yourself permission to do that? And what practically did you do to make a success of that? Sure, I'll try and answer that as best as I can. So, mm. like I said, my first three books were in Christian um, publishing. I wrote fiction, and I was quite fortunate, actually, because the first one that came out uh, was a book called Chemist Journal. And then mm. I wrote it again. It was just out of love, really. I was just, I hadn't been a Christian long. So I wrote the book just based, again, on my experiences, like mm. uh, the people that I spoke to. And then to my surprise, I like came out and I found myself. And I was really fortunate that I 
understand that. Um, I don't think I fully comprehended how, just how fortunate I was. I wrote this book, Christian, I used a Christian publisher and then image page three of the independent <laughs> newspaper and then the media picked it up. And then I wrote two more books after that. And then that was just it. Then I was known as a Christian writer. Yeah. But I really struggled with that because, you know, nobody says I'm going to a Christian plumber. Maybe they do, but I'm like, just live in the real world. No one cares about his face. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like nobody ever says I'm going to a Christian doctor. People just say yeah. I'm going to a doctor. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, and this issue of the faith, I think also coming from where I was, because, you know, I, was, I wasn't born into a church-going family. My parents no. are Muslims. They still are. I'm not. My dad's passed away now. But, and I really struggled with it. I didn't like being known as a Christian writer. It's okay, call me a Christian who writes, but don't call me a Christian writer because then when you do that, you are limiting me. So yeah. when I read the first three books, but I found myself just thinking about this idea of the of Ayo when I was you know, trying to leave um, human rights. And I shared the concept with a few people. And they're like, no, convention is you just stay in one genre. But at the same time, I had this pull to do something different. And mm. I'm glad that I ignored it. They, they mean well, do you know what I mean? Yeah, you know, yeah. People, yeah. They're doing it for the best of intentions, but... Yes, yes. But I think, yeah, for, so I just did not listen because the pull for me to do, to step out and challenge myself creatively was much stronger than my need mm. to be affirmed by people telling me not to do it. That's interesting, is it? Yeah, so have you done anything at all to acknowledge anything practical in, in terms of like have you used a different name yeah so yeah so from a practical aspect i think for me if there's anybody listening to this and you know maybe you've always wanted to write in another genre or maybe you've always done poetry you want to stretch yourself want to try writing books or what have you all i would say to you is like don't wait for people to give you permission the only permission you need to give is to yourself. And don't think you will fail because I really don't think there's such a thing as failure. I think they're all learning experiences. Like I've written books that I've tanked. I'm just like, okay, that's okay. Um, <laughs> it's not the end of the world. It's a bit embarrassing, but you know what? The world has moved on. And so I should probably do that as well. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. And just, you know, do what you need to do. Um, yeah. So many times, I think, but the, I don't know what it is about the writing. So you may, I mean, you spoke to a lot of people about this, and I think this will come as no surprise to you. Or maybe because people think it's like art, so they kind of romanticize it. Why is it that when it comes to writing that people are so afraid of, you know, they've had this idea to do something for so long. Yeah. And they're so scared. They're like, oh, I'm not arty enough. I'm not intellectual enough. I didn't go to Oxford. People will laugh at me. What if it tanks? What if I'm not as good as I think? But then I always flip it around and say, what if you are even better than you think you are? <laughs> you <will> never... <laughs> I know, it's outrageous. Um, you are a bold person. <laughs> great. Well, it's great. Well, I think once you've had a few challenges in life, you tend to realize that you know what and i think for me there's also the faith factor as well yeah i'm like well you know my faith encourages me to be bold and i think yeah. also the kind of family that i come from when you're kind of you don't follow the path because lots of people in my family they're like doctors and lawyers and all it's kind of boring jobs and it's just me people can't quite <laughs> 
<laughs> you know, they can't quite figure me out. Like, what exactly do I get? Okay, you're a writer, but you're ghostwriting now. So what are you doing anyway? I thought you were doing human rights. No, I don't do that anymore. The world has moved on. So, yeah. And I think that's the way it comes from. And I think, I think also my personality. You know, I just always think if it doesn't work out, it's okay. At least I tried it. And I always give myself permission to, for things to not be a success. You know what I mean? So there's a psychological challenge for writing, which is that you take this thing, this concepts and the ideas and the work that you do, which is precious to you, and yeah. you put it out there, haven't you? You, you know, it's a, people unmistakably, I think, probably talk about their their work as their baby and and and, yeah. and all this sort of stuff, and you kind of you put all this investment in this thing and you show it to the world and the world might love it or it might go, nah, not interested. And that, that's, if you're, if you're a fragile soul, that's, wherever you are, that's pretty tough, isn't it? It is tough. But I think if you are a creative person, if you, well, I like to call it arty, farty, schmarty, warty person, and you, <laughs> and you, do you know what I mean? You can't, if you've got this gift and you have this desire, this passion, you know, you can't, you can't, it cannot stay hidden in the cupboard forever. And I think, and if you want to make money out of it, so one of the things, like I, I, I updated my Instagram profile the other day. I'm like, writer, likes to talk about writing and things that other people don't like to talk about, like money. If you want, <laughs> yeah. Because like, again, this idea of romanticize is writing stuff. So if you're, if you're an artifact, smarty, warty person and you want to actually make money for this and a living, it's fine if you know if you want to you know do it as a hobby. That's great. That's fine. You don't yeah. you know you're like I'm just really happy to put it out in the world, people to enjoy it. At some point, you're gonna to want to have some form of um, return on your emotional investment. But if you're like a really really good person, not even a good person, but if you live on cloud nine and you think okay, I don't want any money for you, that's fine. But for anybody to work to earn an honest living from their work, you must be able to take what the world gives you you can't just throw stuff in the world and expect the world to work on open arms after all if you go to the cinema you don't like every film you watch you don't like every book you read do you know what i mean when you go to mm-hmm. the shops you don't like every single item of clothing that's in there and that's is the same for your novel or if, or the book that you're writing, not everybody's going to like it. And that's okay. But then I always say to people as well, you need to make a distinction between constructive criticism and one that is completely useless. Constructive criticism would always seek to build you up. So mm. they wouldn't just say, oh, your book is just useless. So that's meant to destroy you. So don't, for those kinds of things, learn to just basically shake it off but when somebody says to you, oh, Abidemi, I really loved your book. However, I just think that character was a bit weak and, you know, that plot, you know, I just think could have gone X, Y, Z. They're saying they like it, but they're just saying, you know, they're saying, and they're giving you reasons why they didn't like the bit yes, that they like. Yes, They're not just saying That's it's wrong, they're saying they're giving absolutely. you. Absolutely, yeah. Now, what you have said, I know, and what you have talked about uh, in different contexts in the past is writers owning their own dream. Uh, I yeah. think probably we've probably touched on this a little bit, but I wondered if you could explain what you mean by those words. And I've talked about a bit about giving yourself permission, mm. not waiting for someone to give you permission to do stuff. So it is your dream. Do you know what I mean? It's your dream. You're the one that wants to write. And I think unconsciously, and I get this all the time, people saying, well, I'm just going to wait until 
XY, the kid leaves school. I'm just going to wait for or the partner to retire. I'm just going to wait for, I'm just going to wait for. Mm-hmm. In effect, what you're actually doing, you may not realize you're waiting for permission to start or you're, you know, like, you know, giving up like excuses. So, but when you own it, like you have a passion, but when you own it, you find yourself really, really going for it. And when you're laser, when you own something, you're laser focused. Do you know what I mean? You don't, yeah. um, one of the things I, I think I put up is Instagram or Twitter, I don't know what it is. I'm like, you know, be productive, not busy. So lots of people, they talk about writing. They're really, really busy talking about writing. <laughs> about how do, do you know what I mean? They're really busy doing that. Yeah. But the actual work itself, the writing itself, they're not busy at all. They're not doing that. So they're really busy, but they're not productive. They're really, really busy talking about writing. And you can see them a lot in Facebook groups or other communities. Like they know the theory, but the actual practice, <laughs> the practical side, of, they've never written a line in their lives. Or maybe they wrote two lines and they gave up. Whereas, <laughs> do you know what I mean? <laughs> and they realize actually this writing stuff is really not as easy as it looks. Um, well, but, it, um, no, it's not. No. Yeah. So how do you, so, I mean, you've written books. I, I've written books. Yeah. How do we get through writing a book? How do you get through writing a book? How did you write more than two lines? How did you finish your book? Again, well, I started. So one of the things I like to do just to basically demystify this process for people. And I'm mm. really glad you asked me that question because, again, people have asked me, how do you start writing a book? So I'm like, well, you open up the computer and if you don't like to type, open up a notepad and then just start writing and don't stop until you're tired. And I don't kind of like subscribe to the idea that to be a proper writer, that you have to write a certain way or do do follow Daphne Maurier's writing schedule or method or what have you. Everybody's different. Do you know what I mean? If all you have is 10 minutes a day, to do your writing, do that. Write for an hour every day. What if you have two or three jobs that you haven't got an hour or you have is 10 minutes? <laughs> yeah, and, and for some people, I mean, I, I know they're like I know, busy parents and yeah. they'd never have an hour, a whole hour. Yeah. So how does the issue of discipline and being disciplined with your writing work for you then? So there's this idea that what I have is I always say to myself, oh, whatever I do today, impacts my tomorrow so for me it's, it's really it's a lot about being consistent if all you have is 10 minutes a day then write 10 minutes a day for every day or for however long yeah at some point you will get to the end of your book so that's the way that i think about it you, you know we talked a while back about owning the writing owning the vision so for me that's how i tend to approach a lot of things and it's really weird because i always tend to think of the future like what what have I done today to actually move my business or my writing forward? And it's not, all, it's not always about the big things. Like, it's not always about the big things, like, you know, having an interview with a major podcaster. Hint, hint. Thank <laughs> <laughs> <Okay>. you. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's not always about those big things. And it may just be something as simple as, okay, I sent off one pitch to a literary agent because I want to be traditionally published. And that, you know, that proposal, whatever that is, may not be the best, it may not be perfect, but at least I've done it. Yeah, yeah. At least you've had a go. Yes. But you haven't just talked about it, you've actually done it. Absolutely, yes. 
now you've worked as a freelancer um, yeah so what advice would you give particularly to writers who want to get into some some writing related business as a freelance activity so the easiest way to start so would be to write blogs for people and i always say start with your passion um so if you're really passionate about i don't know lifestyle or tech or finance then start uh, marketing yourself in those areas mm. but you must also be good you must educate yourself you know invest in yourself so you don't look stupid in front of your prospects basically um and you know so just try and keep it simple say so a lot of people they want to have the five thousand pound retainer but then the people that have this yeah because they read about all these people listen like when i decided to go from freelance to running my own fully branded content business like within three months, I got my first, was it, was it 20K? It was like, yeah, it was about 20,000 pounds, I think. It was 18,000 pounds, that's about $20,000, yeah? Mm-hmm. So within three months, going from freelance to setting up this content writing business, I had my first 20K, $20,000 contract. But do you know what I mean? Like, I got it because somebody recommended my services because they knew me from my freelancing days. Yes, yeah. But you see, I'd done the work. Yeah. So I, I'd earned it. Do you know what I mean? I showed up on time. I know what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. It, it reminds me of the, the kind of joke about uh, people say, you know, that a writer can spend 10 years becoming an overnight success. Yeah. As in, you know, actually, it looks like some people just burst onto the scene and they just get a, like, a massive deal as if they. Yeah. But actually, they might, they've probably been grafting away for ages beforehand to get to that. Honestly, forget 10 years. Let's talk about 30. <laughs> Oh, so realistic. Yes. Now, it seems to me that owning your identity as a person and as a writer is a very, these are very important concepts for you. Yeah. Can you tell me a bit more about how you have managed to do this? I know we've covered little bits, some of this already, but how, how have you done this? Owning your identity as the person you are and as the writer you are. I think it's because I am quite comfortable with myself. But mm. also I think as a person of colour, especially with someone like a name like Abidemi Sinosi, where people's first instinct is to just shorten your name to Abby. It's like, dude, that's not my name. If you can, you know, if you can spell Vladlebe or say it, then you can say Abidemi. Seven characters. <laughs> yeah. So f- for me, it's like I've never... I've never not wanted to be Abidemi. When I started writing more books, I one of the things that I did was so my the books that I published as a as a in Christian publishing, they were first published on the Abidemi Sunusi. But then I made a decision a couple of years ago to republish those books under a pseudonym, Levi Reed. Because I just thought that would be easier. So my Christian audience now know me as Levi Reed. It's a pseudonym. And then the mm. general audience know me as Abidemi. And that's why I made that decision myself. But I think as a person of color, again, this is about identity. Um, identity and diversity. I think what I would say to people is your voice matters. Your writing mm. matters. And I know I've had quite a, people, quite a few people tell me, Abidemi, should I change my name to... Jane Smith. Well, yeah, because you know, like so some writers, like they were born in this country, but 
you know, their families want to hold on to their heritage, so they decided to call their kids Jane Smith, or some other ethnic sounding name. Do you know what I mean? For whatever reason, but then, and they're asking, like, people don't take me seriously. I'm not getting as many responses. If I send off to this and that person, um, you know, um, you feel to a certain expect, to certain, I know there's a lot of pressure for you to write a certain way because I know that for some people of color, I'll give an example. Some guy was showing on Twitter the other day about how, two examples actually, he sent in this book to a, a publisher and they said, well, we've already had We've already got one person of color on our books. We haven't got space for another one. Really? Wow. Yes, in this day and age. And then there was another one like, well, I don't think black people talk like that. But the, you know what I mean? Like, well, who are you to decide? Like, you know, I don't think that black people talk, this is not urban enough. It was a person like, it's the Cambridge. Person <laughs> has a PhD from Cambridge. Like, who are you to decide? Like, this is, how black people talk. This is how Indians talk. This is, <laughs> wow. so this is a kind of, yeah. And I remember actually like one of my early books that came out in another country because it was, it had a foreign translation and in the book dealt with mixed race relationships and my English publisher was told, because she queried it, my English editor, she was just like, why is there a white person on the cover? The book is about mixed race relationships. And the person said, we don't do mixed race in this country. But it's too what the translation. <laughs> do you know what I mean? But, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> okay. I, 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 I just don't think I'm going to say anything about that, really. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's nothing you can say. And I know, no. yeah, there's nothing you can say. So with all this, you can imagine when someone says, well, I don't want to put Jane Smith, I don't want to put Abidemis Tunisia on my book as the author. I'm just going to use Jane Smith because all these expectations and labels and just constant boxing me in, it's just, you know, I just I can't take it. It's just easier if I'm called Jane Smith. But I would always say no, because your name is your name. Um, your story is your story. Nobody can tell it as well as you do. Do you know what I mean? Um mm. And that is the way that I would always approach it. It's never occurred to me to change my name to Jane Smith. And the only reason I chose Levi Reed for my Christian books, so to speak, was just because I just really want to make a firm distinction between the author who writes books for a Christian market and then the author who writes books for a general audience. That was just... So, but if it, yeah. so there is a clear distinction, I think, in what you're saying here between using different names, English between like a faith-based book and a general book. Basically, and that's really different from using a name to disguise your racial identity. Yeah, because you feel like literally that that's the only way to go because you have no other choice but to do this because the industry or society is just giving you no other option. It's like when I meet people um, and they say, Oh, Abby Demi, can I call you Abby? No. But I like you so much, though. No. <laughs> name is. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Abby just so much more shorter than Abby Demi. No, it's Abby Demi. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I know other writers. They won't. They don't want their name shortened. They want to own their name. Yeah. Uh, they want to be known by their name because, and that is bound up with their identity. And I think that's in. That's, yeah. It's in yeah. Point, isn't it? So, so what encouragement? What other encouragement then could you give to writers from say diverse ethnic backgrounds? Some of whom. Yeah 
feeling marginalized or ignored or or are feeling that kind of social pressure that you're talking about what kind of mindset would you recommend to those people when i talk about ownership it's about saying this is who i am this is these are my experiences and they are just as valid as anybody else so i don't know what genre you're writing in but they're like if you're looking for a literary agent for instance so i think there's a new one by Nikesh Shukler. Um, I think it's agency. I think it got some funding from the arts councils. I think they're called the Good Literary Agency or something. So you could try those. And then there's also like my publisher. They publish um, amazing people from diverse um, backgrounds. They're called Jacaranda. And I think a third of the people on their list, they're like, they've won all these amazing awards. Um, But they're really open and they're really good. And there's like lots of other ones like that you don't always have to go for the harper collins and the penguins and the vintage and the little browns mm. you know look for like the you know and the chances are you actually want like a much smaller publisher who would take the time to nurture you as a writer mm. you know um mm. and you have a close relationship with the editor so when you turn in your book um they can you know, when you give them your book, they'll take the time to know you as a person and really nurture you as a writer. But if you decide that you want to self-publish, um, you have a bit more flexibility. The reason I will say to you just it's just making sure that your book is the best that it can ever be. Um, so it doesn't carry the quote-unquote stigma of self-publishing. Mm. Make sure you get yourself the best developmental editor that money can buy. Um, that's all I will say to you. Invest in an editor. They're worth, I know people say they're expensive, but it's just they're so worth it. The good ones are worth it. Yeah. So I, I completely agree with, with, with you. I mean, um, yeah. and in fact, one of more and more, some one, one piece of advice that I give to writers now is when you, when you do a thing, make it the best it can be. Yeah. So that you can be proud of your work. In fact, I think, yes. I think there, was a, there was an episode I did a while back talking about the importance of being proud of our work and which was yeah. something you highlighted back to me, I think, when you, when you approached me. So, in fact, I wonder if you, you want to just comment on that. Why, why is it so important that for a writer to do the best they can and be proud of their work? You have to, because because sometimes I meet people. You've written, you, you God, God, it's like blood and sweat. This writing thing, and then put out there. <laughs> That's what it feels like. It's like blood and sweat. Lord Jesus, it's like blood and sweat. And you put it out there, and then you're, you know, and then someone says, "Oh, let me read your book," and you're just like, "No, it's just a whole bunch of rubbish, really. Honestly, don't read it. It's just a little thing. It's not a little thing. Like you spend all that time, yeah, all your heart and soul into it." And, you know, you've got an amazing editor. I, I hope you've got an amazing editor. And then you released it to the world. And now you're diminishing all that effort. Like, why? Do you know what I mean? It's like, you know, like, and, you know, and I also believe in the power of words. Like, as what you say actually becomes reality. And that does not mean to say that you're denying the truth of what your real life you real real with what your life is so if you're broke and you say i'm broke that isn't what somatically mean to say that you know <laughs> i'm just saying just owning it so yeah just yeah. i've written a book someone says you're a writer just say yes i am a writer oh you've yeah. written a book yes i've written a book don't add any more to it don't take it away from it just you know, leave it as it is um 
that's what I would say to people. Just, you know, be proud of it. It's like somebody who's just, you know, directed the first film, <laughs> you know, and they, and, they, and they release it. Five year, in five years' time, you probably hate that film. Everybody hates the first book, the first film, the first <laughs> art exhibition. You know, you're not alone. We've all been there. We know what that's like. You know, like I always say to people, like my first book, like looking back, um, I don't think I would have written it that way. But it's out there now. There's nothing I can do about it. I cannot magically not have it there. But I hope when people read the first one and they read my current one or the last one, whatever, they can see some element of improvement in my writing mm-hmm. style. And I suppose you have to own the book that you've written years ago that you wouldn't necessarily write now as much as you have to own all the rest of your work. I, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. In fact, that's, that's kind of, I've just written down here, own it, and then put a little exclamation mark, which I might use as the title for this, for this podcast. <laughs> there, there seems to be a theme running through our conversation, which is, you know, you, you own your work, you own your identity, and you're proud of those things, and you own your name. And, you know, if, if, if you don't quite fit, or you, or you don't, it doesn't matter, you just, you own it, and you claim it, and it's yours, and you stand proud with it, whatever it is. Yeah. I know when my first book came out and I went to see a friend. And this is when I tell people this story, they're always so shocked. I went to see a friend. My first book has just come out, my first book. I went to see a friend and she gave me this the book, this print copy. And then she goes, Oh, there were some typos in there. So I've basically highlighted it for you. I've put like, you know, sticky notes on there as well. It's just <laughs> so I just said, okay, thank you. You know, I was in my mind. I was like, "Well, that's not me. That's down to the editor." But I just realized, actually, why am I even wasting my time? I just said, "Thank you." She goes, "Yeah." So and I, I think she said something to the effect of, "So when you when you, once you've made those notes, they just give me back the book, but I've highlighted it for you so you can see it." <laughs> 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 oh my god, Andy! It's like, what do you do in that situation? Like, of course, I wrote it. It's my name on there. I, you know, I just I just said thank you. Yeah, I don't know what to do really. Um, yeah, yeah I, I guess like like now, like if yourself, I guess one answer to that, if you're self-publishing, um, yeah. and somebody like somebody says, oh, you know, typo on page fifteen or whatever. If you've self-published and you can go to the manuscript and change it, and yeah. it takes you five minutes, and it's yeah. just a typo, then cool, do it. I, I would say, um, yeah, but. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, like, I wouldn't want people, I certainly wouldn't want anybody saying to me, oh, you know, you should, here's some corrections. You could have swapped this stuff around and you should have done this and you should. Have. No, I'm not, I'm not. Well, yeah, I just, I just said thank you. That was not yeah, so thank you and that's it. Moving on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, some writers are unsure about how to, t- they have an idea, and you kind of alluded to this earlier, they have a great book idea or they have a great character idea or whatever they've got. Um, but they don't really know how to take, how to go through the steps to take an idea all the way through to the final manuscript. Uh, so what advice would you give on that subject? And, and is there like a more structured solution that you can offer to people who are interested in that sort of thing? Yeah, sure. So there are a couple of ways to do this. So which takes us nicely to my courses. <laughs> <laughs> that was the idea. <laughs> yeah. So... Um, I have an online course which is called um, From 
book idea to finish manuscripts in five steps. And it is five steps. You just basically take you through your book idea, how to develop it, how to structure it. And then the next step is, you know, fleshing out um, the elements of the structure of the book, whether it's a novel or nonfiction, the structure of the book. And then just also thinking about the actual writing of the book itself, the third step. I think that's the bit that a lot of people struggle with, the writing of the book, what's that, what that's meant to look like. And then once you start writing as well, um, we also talk about writer's block. Mm. And then how to keep on keeping on. Because the fact of the matter is, you know what this is like. When you get to about, uh, I don't know, 30, 40% of the book, you lose the yeah. way to live. Yeah. You hate it. You, you know, your head, you know, it's going to be a disaster. Yeah. Um, yeah. So part of the course is just basically about tackling those, um, those roadblocks. And then the most important thing is about this thing about timing. I think people might, people think that time will just come out of nowhere. And you just find all this time to write this book. So these, yeah. And like, you know, there's something that we always say in church, but Jesus himself had 24 hours and you have internet and you have more resources than he had. So you can, you can do so much more. But again, these resources that we have now, they're just distractions. Yeah. 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 They are. So those are the things. And there's a, there's a module in the course, which I like call um, how to write, the book of your dreams without giving up Netflix. And we take you through that process. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> oh, well, thank you for that. I like watching Netflix. Oh, well, yeah. You know, how to write a book with you without giving up Netflix. So just practical advice like that. So from idea to fleshing it out to the actual writing of the book, the execution, and then, you know, tackling practical things like, you know, how to carve out the time, how to make use of the time that you've got. And also this bit about writing a book that you're proud of. Um, so those are the things. And one of the biggest things that I, you know, that I help people with on the course, actually, is the mindset. This imposter syndrome. I spend a lot of time with people who take the course on that. Because mm. while you're writing, this horrible, horrible, horrible voice in your head is telling you it's no good. That's going to be a disaster. That no, you know, that no one's going yeah. to care. People yeah. are going to make fun of you. I spend a lot of time with people just basically just breaking down that, you know, that voice and just basically turning around for your good. And you know, we call it the imposter syndrome. Mm. And that's a really big thing, I think, for anybody that creates. You really, really have to tackle that head on because you can, you know, there's, it's just if you start writing a book and that stuff is not tackled, it can, I've seen it cripple people. And it's not, it's not nice at all. No, it is a, it is a common problem for, well, create, I was going to say writers, all creative people, imposter syndrome. Yeah. And you have to kind of be aware that it's coming, I think. Yeah. Yeah, that's why I spend a lot of time with people, um, you know, dealing with it, helping them through it. I think it's really, really important because once you tackle it, then that sense of ownership, um, you know, you have a much better chance of basically getting through to the other side. And the other side is typing the end. <laughs> 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 now I know that one of the that one of the questions that you ask is what would you do if you finally achieved your writing dream? So yeah, uh, you know if you finally get the thing done, um, and then you follow. Yeah, I think I've heard you say that you follow that up with the kind of what if the reality doesn't live up to the dream? So I wonder yeah. if you could just 
because I think actually a lot of us writers, we we have a dream of what the right writing and what publishing is going to be like, and quite well, often isn't actually the reality isn't actually as good as the dream. What what's your what's your observations on that? So I mean, all I can do is just share my story. So um, I the dream was also to, was always to write full time and run my mm. own writing business. Mm. I did that, and I, I really wasn't happy. Honestly, I especially when it came to the writing business, but I was it was running a full fledged. I wanted to have like this amazing brand, and on the outside, everybody thought I was okay because I had all these clients. People like Unilever, you know, I had Symantec, the people who do the Northern antivirus. I had, mm. you know, because I specialize in fintech uh, clients, financial tech and legal clients because they pay the most money. I had all these law firms, do you know what I mean? But I wasn't happy. Um, it was just a lot of pressure when you were yeah. in the business and I was responsible for five people. It was a virtual office, which has always been my dream. And it was very lonely. It was very isolating. And I realized actually it wasn't good for my mental health at all because I was getting, I developed severe anxiety. I was, you know, I was also developed um, depression, was quite depressed because of all these pressures. And I think um, I also had like a network community of fellow entrepreneurs, business owners. After a while, because I moved from working from home to a business center, a, co- a co-working space, mm. I stayed in one place for about six months, then I moved to another place. And I realized the one thing that we all had in common was depression and anxiety. Wow. Because of the, yeah, because of the pressure of running a business. And then one day I remember waking up and, um, because it was just full on, because I was the owner of the business. I was paying salaries. And you know, for all the three years I did this full time. It was easy as a consultant because you just go into a business and you're like da 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 da, and then you collect your money and then you disappear. Let, let them do the execution. But when you're actually running the business, you're a service provider. It's it's a different kind of pressure. And I also had this whole team of freelancers that were working for me, and even that came with its own pressure because sometimes freelancers will let you down, and you know yeah. you're presenting in front of all these clients, and it was just it was a lot. And I woke up one morning, I just thought, actually, this is what I've always wanted. Now I have it, I don't want it. It's not making me happy. It's, <laughs> I don't want it. It's, it's made me really quite ill. So oh, I set goodness. about, I, yeah, I called my team. Um, I called the developer, I called the editor, I called the, those, yeah, I called the writers. And I just said, I'm going to wrap up the business within the next three months. So I did that and I, went back to being a consultant and a contractor. And I think people need to prepare for that, actually. So let's say you write this book. What if it's a success? Let's just imagine. Yeah. What will you do if it's a success? And then what if it isn't a success or what you define success to be? What will you do as a result of it? Because sometimes we're so focused on getting to type in the end. If you want to go via the traditional publishing route, what if you don't get a literary editor, a literary agent? But if you don't get a publishing contract in five years and 10 years and 20 years or 30 years, yeah. what if you self-publish it and it's a disaster? No one cares. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? But what if you get this amazing seven-figure publishing contract or you release it, uh, you, know, you self-publish it and you, know, you sell 30,000 copies? I think what we're both trying to say to people listening to this, you really need to think about what will happen, what, you, what you're going to do, where you type the end or what the reality of 
what you've been pushing to do is going to look like. Um, we don't think about it. We all just think about just getting to the mountain top. But actually, when you get to the mountain top, at some point you're going to have to come down. So you need to figure out how you're going to come down <laughs> or what the mountain top is going to look like. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so that's, yeah, I had it. And I think on the outside, everybody thought I was doing great. Just thought, oh my gosh, you're living the dream. You're working from home. You're the boss and all the rest of it. And I'm like, no, I have not been on holiday. Um, I am withdrawn. I don't know how to talk to people because all I'm thinking about is, you know, expenses and cost and accountants meeting and all the rest of that stuff. And yeah, it's, 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 it's sometimes you think you want something and you get it. And then actually you think, nah, this mountain top is just, it looks a lot better when I was down in the valley, to be honest with you. <laughs> And that's what I have to say at that point. <laughs> but, but I guess the, the lesson I'm taking from what you're saying, though, is that you did act to change the situation. Yeah. You did, even though it's probably difficult for you to kind of extract yourself from that, from that working life and, and move to another one. And you had people working for you and all the rest of it. You actually yeah. acted. You, took, you didn't just kind of passively let it continue. You took no. action. Yeah, because I could see the end and I knew the writing on the wall was not, it was not going to end in a good place for me. No. Now, I was already dealing with terrible insomnia, um, not sleeping for days, sometimes even weeks on end. I was very withdrawn. I wasn't talking to people. Um, I, anxiety was just really, really bad. Like, you know, uh, letters would come. I would see emails from clients and immediately my heart would just start beating I, at one point, I was convinced my heart was going to just beat out of my chest. That's how bad it was. Yes. So I knew that, that I was unwell. Mm. Mm. Do you know what I mean? And I mm. knew that it was going to get, I knew it wasn't going to get better. And I think for some people, they probably thought, oh, she's a failure or, you know, she didn't make a success of the business. Mm. But as far as, you know, I think I probably thought that actually myself about five minutes. But <laughs> and then I you did, stopped just, that. Yeah. Well, then I stopped because I just thought, but actually, I'm a lot happier. I'm going out. I'm seeing friends and family. I'm, do you know what I mean? I can I can be normal because then I was working seven days a week, eighteen hours a day, nonstop. That's what running the business is like. Yeah, it's, it's madness. It really is madness. Um. Um, but, you know, I was a lot happier. I smiled a lot more. I wasn't, the anxiety went down. Yeah. Um, do you know what I mean? And what I've learned from that is actually also, I talk a lot about well-being to people now, the importance of, I talk about mental wealth, um, like your health is your wealth. So I mm. talk a lot about that to people, mm. about how it's important to protect your creativity and your headspace. And I think if that hadn't happened to me, I wouldn't have known just how important it was which is why I educate mm. people about it mm. a lot now. Like, at least just meeting up with a friend, I'm like, look, I want to pray for you. I'm not going to pray for you to be rich. I'm going to pray for you <laughs> to have peace of mind. Because when you have peace of mind, then you can do, do you know what I mean? That's the most valuable thing you have in the mm. world, peace mm. of mind. And when that's taken away, gosh, <laughs> you it's have terrible, nothing. Isn't it? Yeah. 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 Um, so you've talked a little bit about your five steps yeah. to you finishing the manuscript, but I wonder if you could tell us if there are any other ways in which you can help writers to achieve their goals. So one of the ways is via the online courses, but also I think 
the marketing, um, the marketing. I know, you know, writers, authors, writers, if you've written a book, author, obviously you haven't, whatever, just general writers, you think marketing is a dirty word, but one of the things, <laughs> but it's not. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just, it's, you know, it's just about positioning yourself in front of people who are likely who are more likely to buy from you. So one of the things, I'm like a really geeky person. I love tech. And um, one of the, my primary skill is like digital stuff. So when I talk about marketing, it's one of the things that I do digital marketing, but I specialize in content. And um, so I always say to people, when it comes to marketing your stuff as a writer, you should really shouldn't just confine yourself, limit yourself to um, social media. It's very important for you. You must own your space. And one of the best ways to do that is by having your own website. Mm. And then when I, was, um, when I used to help clients and do all the rest of that stuff, um, a lot of them used um, WordPress, actually. Mm. I think, so yeah, I think 30, 35% of the websites in the world is part of WordPress. So I was looking for one for writers and I really just couldn't find one. So now I've now developed uh, WordPress themes for writers. And the first theme is going to be released actually in the next week or so. So I'm really excited oh, about it. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, so uh, the courses that you talked about and marketing and, and support and advice. Um, yeah. If, if people are interested in any of this and they want to perhaps find out more about you or get in touch or whatever, how would they do that? So for the writing course, um, you can go to abidemi.tv. And I think there's also, um, I'm guessing you're probably going to have a link to that. And then for the WordPress themes, if you go to write themes, that's W-R-I-T-E-T-H-E-M-E-S.com, writethemes.com. Um, that should be launched hopefully by the time this is out. So we're just basically just work, working out, um, fine-tuning the website. But it should be released um, by the time this comes out. Okay. And then they, they can get the first theme. Um, so I'm, I'm really excited about that. I think for me, for anybody that's listening, um, what I would want you guys to take more than anything, if you've been thinking about writing and talking about it for the last 50 years, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Don't be a talker because, like, yeah, you know, just put your finger out. <laughs> do you know what I mean? <laughs> just put your finger out and then start typing. And if you started and you stopped, you started and you stopped. Don't berate yourself. Be kind to yourself. Tomorrow yes. is another yes. day. Yeah, I mean, I think it's I. I well, there's lots I'm taking from our conversation. I think the point you make about mental health and mental wealth as, as you think is really important and peace of mind. Um, and, and also the, the, all this stuff about owning, own your work, own the decisions you make, own your identity. Yeah. It's a, it's kind of one of those things that I kind of, I kind of half know it and I think I know it's great to be reminded and to really focus in on those things, isn't it? Yeah. And to be, be, in the best sense, proud of who you are, proud of your work. Yes. Yes. There's only one you. And one of the things I also tackle in the course, but also for people who talk to me, they're like, you're so comfortable with yourself. That's what they always tell me. Like, mm. you just, you know what I mean? I'm like, well, there's only one of me in the world. You know, there's, there's already one Beyonce. The world doesn't need a fake Beyonce. Do you know what I mean? There's one Beyonce. Beyonce is not trying to be like, I don't know, Michelle Obama. 
because it's already there's one Michelle Obama. So I might as well just own me. There's only one of me. Yeah. People don't want a second rate Beyonce. They don't want a second rate Michelle Obama. Nobody wants a second rate of anybody. <laughs> That's why I say so don't try and be like the next John Grisham. We already have a John Grisham. You know, be like the number one best version of you. Yeah. Don't try and write like that person or be like that person. Yeah. It's just boring, yeah. you know. <laughs> Even though that's going to be hard work to find that, I guess, because because writing is hard work, but that's just how it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. cool. And I would never say to anybody that it's easy. Um, if no. it was easy, everybody would be doing it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Abidemi. Well, it's been a pleasure to talk to you, and we've, we've covered a whole bunch of stuff. Really, really fascinating, thanks, Andy. Um, and uh, yeah, thanks very much for giving us some of your time. Thanks, Thank Andy. You Have a good night. You too. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Creative Writers Toolbelt podcast. If you want to find out more about the podcast or me, just go to my website. It's andrewjchamberlain.com.